Our Old Testament reading today comes from the book of Micah, chapter 7, verses 6 through 7. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Thank you, Bryn. Last Sunday, we preached uh, a sermon. We talked about peace on earth, which is appropriate. We had our Advent banners up here. And the last one is peace, the last theme of the Advent Sundays. And that's appropriate um, to talk about peace. It's a major theme of this season. And it is a peaceful time, isn't it? As we gather and we decorate and there's special foods we make and family that maybe we haven't talked through throughout the year and people come and visit or we call and we send cards. It's, it really is a beautiful, peaceful time of year. And it is not inappropriate for us to spend so much time and energy and decoration and even money to celebrate the sort of festive peace of this time of year. But in scripture, there's an opposite side of the coin when we talk about peace. Because the peace that Christ came, came to give us is not absolute, is it? Because our world, there is still violence, strife within family. And so as we read our passage this morning, I just wanna sort of broadcast the big idea as we read through this passage of scripture in Matthew. I want you to be thinking about the idea that the gospel can bring strife before it brings peace. Matthew 10, 34 through 39. This is the word of God and the words of Jesus. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword for I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Father, now we pray for the illumination of your spirit to guide us through a passage like this and to open the eyes of our hearts that we might understand Christ's words for us, to hold in balance both understandings of peace quicken our hearts that we might be convinced and convicted of this truth and leave this place differently than the way we came in. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, it was about 10 years ago in California where we're from and we were at a church for a good while. It was about a church of a thousand and they brought in a very famous evangelist. Now, he's a guy who goes around preaching on the streets and he does it in California. He's from New Zealand. Maybe you know who he is. I won't say his name, but he's very good at it. It's sort of a confrontational style of evangelism where 
he'll go to an open air shopping center and he'll set up a microphone for skeptics and a microphone for himself and people will come and they'll sort of talk about God and often it's the, the, the exchange is a little tense, but he's really skillful at it. You know, some people don't do it well and if, and if, if I was probably in an open air shopping, you know, um, center and somebody was up there, you know, some fiery preacher, I would probably avoid it too because it's often uncomfortable and tense, but this guy's really good at it. And you can see his videos on YouTube. Uh, but when he came, he talked to us and encouraged us about, you know, what it means to engage people every day with the good news of Jesus and not to be afraid to get into conversations about God. But one of the things he admitted to us, and this was sort of shocking, he's probably about 60 years old, maybe early 60s by now, he admitted that there is one, this guy can talk to anybody, hostile people, he's really, he can talk to anybody about Jesus, and he's skilled at doing it. I mean, you watch it and you just go, wow, that's amazing. But he admitted he can't talk to his mother about, about Jesus. His mother is not a believer. And he said, there is one, we, we're all shocked to hear this, there's one person that he just does not have the courage to talk to, and it's his own mom. And she's back in New Zealand. And he highlighted the fact that it's often easier to stand up to resistance or persecution for our faith from strangers than unbelieving family and friends. And we understand that, don't we? Because there's a lot on the line. A relationship with a family member is a close relationship. It is a bond. And if you alienate someone that you're very close to, that you love very much, well, that hurts a lot more than alienating a complete stranger. Not that we're out to alienate anybody. That's not what we want to do. Well, last week we talked about three kinds of peace that Jesus wants us to have. Peace with God, peace within, and peace with others. But Jesus came to establish peace. Because Jesus came to establish peace, that doesn't mean that the gospel automatically puts an end to conflict and strife or necessarily makes our lives more comfortable, more safe and secure, does it? We talked about the difference between peacekeeping, which sometimes can be conflict avoidant, right? Some people are peacekeepers. It just means they don't want to argue about anything. They don't want to get in any conflict. They just, and so they avoid conflict even sometimes when you, there needs to be conflict because some things are hard and need to be talked through versus peacemaking, a really good book called The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. And he talks about the difference between the peacekeeper and the peacemaker because peacemaking can eventually bring peace sometimes only after a fierce battle. You think about World War II, right? You think about, you know, what happened in World War II. I mean, America, we didn't want to enter the war. Pearl Harbor brought us into the war. We, we wanted to avoid it. And there was peace after the war, but we had to go through that horrific conflict to get peace on the other side of that conflict. The outcome was peace. And so sometimes it's like that with other people, relationally. We have to, to make peace, we have to enter into the strife sometimes. Well, Jesus was honest about the fact that his coming initiated spiritual warfare, combat with our enemy, the devil, with whom there can be no peace. We're not out to make peace with the devil, are we? Right? That's not what Jesus 
was about. He didn't say, you know, I come to make peace with the devil. He, was, he actually came to destroy the works of darkness. That's what Jesus came to do, to destroy the works of darkness. And if we think about the conflict that the gospel brings only in an abstract idea or form of we're fighting with the devil, we may not recognize that sometimes the conflict that we have with other people over our faith is unavoidable. Spiritual warfare plays itself out in the day-to-day relationships sometimes with friends and family who reject the good news of the gospel. Now, I'm using spiritual warfare in a way that our modern minds, we think of warfare, we think of like, you know, hating somebody or attacking somebody. That's not what I'm talking about, but I'm just talking about the conflict. Two people very close to each other love each other, but they disagree over some fundamental ideas about God. And the closeness can only be so much. You think, why can't I get, why can't I get through to this person? Why can't we really have a deep connection? And you realize, well, there's spiritual warfare going on. Right? They see the world completely different than the way I see the world. So we have to remember that Jesus did not hold out the possibility of peace at all costs. Even the Apostle Paul says, live peaceably with all men as much as it lies within you. You Do your best to live live at peace with people, but as as, as much as it lies within you. Some people, it's not possible. And maybe it not, may, may not be for you, but it may be for them. That, you know, they may not want to live at peace with you, no matter how hard you try. And our heart breaks, doesn't it, when there are people that we want to make peace with, but we just cannot. And Jesus' words here in this passage are a hard pill to swallow. Do not think that I have come to bring peace but a sword. That's a hard saying of Jesus, isn't it? There are hard sayings of Jesus And as we think about and pray about what our next sermon series is going to be, I've been thinking about, and I'll talk to the elders about this, but I've been thinking about a series called The Hardest Sayings of Jesus, because there's some hard stuff that Jesus said. There were hard things that Jesus said, and some things that as Christians and followers of Jesus, we're not very good at implementing or obeying or walking in obedience to. There are some hard things he said. No doubt some of you at this very moment in your life have family members who you struggle to share Jesus with. You've made sort of a, um, an uneasy settlement. You just kind of avoid the topic, you know? And it may be a son or a daughter or a daughter-in-law or a son-in-law. It may be a sibling or a parent or a grandchild. And it can make this time of year at family gatherings somewhat awkward. Jesus says, listen, the gospel is like a sword. It divides families. Look at what he says. I'm going to read our passage again in Matthew 10, 34. I'll read it quickly. Don't think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, And a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. The context of Jesus' words here is 
a conversation about the costs of discipleship. The costs of discipleship. And make no mistake about it, if you're going to be a disciple of Jesus, there is a cost to pay. Now, this isn't the only cost, but this is one of them. This is one of the costs of discipleship that Jesus may divide families. And he gives us this statement here. I did not come to bring peace on earth but a sword. So much for sweet baby Jesus, meek and mild, right? But elsewhere, Jesus says, peace I leave with you. My peace, not as the world gives it, I give it to you, right? So he does tell us he gives us his peace. So which is it? Is it a tension or a tautology in scripture, a contradiction? Is he giving us peace or is he not giving us peace? Well, like most things in the Bible, um, it requires reflection and nuance. You know, this is the, I think that, you know, so, I, so I've, grown up in, I've grown up in the church. My father was a pastor. I spent my entire life in churches. You know, I consider myself a lifelong Christian. And I think if there's one thing I've learned, I'm 47 now, there's one thing I've learned is that like, there are a lot of things in the Bible that require us to avoid like simple answers. Some things are simply answered. But there are other things, especially the words of Jesus, that are complex. We have to avoid sort of like simple narratives, right? Requires reflection and thought and nuance. So let me explain a little bit about this context to sort of tease out the implications of Jesus came to bring us peace and then he says, I didn't come to bring peace, okay? In Jesus' day, for the most part, people expected the Messiah to bring political deliverance to Israel and to usher in an eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace. That was the popular conception of the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah, prophesied for centuries by the prophets. And the Old Testament spoke of the Messiah's peacemaking. Isaiah called him the Prince of Peace. You know that passage, Isaiah 9 and 6. And spoke of his reign of perfect peace and justice. And Solomon wrote of the Messiah's worldwide rule and peace and abundance. And Jesus' disciples had already experienced an inner peace. And they had never known peace like that before. As they walked with Jesus and talked with Jesus and learned from Jesus and heard his message and experienced his power, they experienced a peace like they had never known before. And they might have thought that the world would fall at their feet in submission to the message. And that the message of Jesus would continue to grow unabated in intensity and extent the longer they were with him. How nice would that be? That we just uttered Jesus' words and there was absolute submission to it. People just surrendered. But that isn't our experience and it wasn't going to be the disciples' experience either and he wanted to prepare them for that. Jesus wanted to prepare his disciples and us for the possibility of rejection and suffering because he knew that they and us experience or would experience rejection and suffering. 
Now, Jesus wants us to experience peace and radiate that peace outward, but he warns us that because the world is, these are my words, not his, at war with God, if I can put it that way. I mean, like the truest conception of God. I mean, you know, there's a warm, fuzzy feeling about God, some heavenly grandfather up in the sky who's just, you know, passing out candy as people walk by. That's kind of a popular conception of God. God is just a, a nice guy, an old man upstairs who, you know, he just pats you on your head as you walk by and give you a sucker. That's kind of the, and that's not just like, like the popular conception, that's a lot of Christians' conception of God, right? The cosmic nice guy. But essentially, in a very real sense, the world is at war with God, what God really represents who he really is, his person, his character. And so rejecting the Son of God, rejecting Jesus, is not all that far-fetched. I mean, Jesus knew it would come, he expected it, and, I mean, he was crucified after all, right? And he wanted to tell us and warn us that we would, at times, experience rejection. Now, going back to my initial statement, I don't think... Our feathers are very ruffled if people we don't know well think, oh, you're just one of those loony Christians, no big deal. We go, oh, whatever. But the pain is that our faith would alienate us from the people we love the most. And one of the reasons why I'm talking about this is because uh, a lot of us are alienated from family members. And I'm not just talking about one person. I've talked to multiple families in our church and there are tense relationships with children, with siblings, with parents over the faith. People have, they view us in a certain way, or they view you in a certain way, and you grieve and you mourn over that relationship because you're not united in faith. And this is what Jesus says in verse 36. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. That's a tough statement. What Jesus is getting at is the hallmark, is that at least one hallmark of discipleship, what it means to follow him, is the, the willingness to forsake everything, including, if it comes to that, one's own family. And that's hard. We almost wish that it wasn't, it wasn't there. We, we almost wish that Jesus didn't say whoever is not willing to forsake father and mother, brother, sister, son, or daughter for my sake is not worthy of me, but he does say it. He says it. And we often, because our theology is grace-oriented, we don't think much about being worthy because we like, no, we're sinners, we're not worthy. But, I mean, take Jesus' words at face value for a moment. Whoever is not willing right, to forsake family or loved ones, son, daughter, father, mother, brother, sister, for me, is not worthy of me. Now, maybe you have not had to forsake anyone, but, or, but, but sort of the willingness that if it came to that, I can't deny my faith. What do I do to make peace with someone, a family member, a loved one who will not make peace with me? Do I abandon Christ? Do I walk away from my faith just and, and just totally compromise? I mean, there's some things we cannot compromise. 
And this is what's hard. We can be gracious. We can be understanding. We can be loving. We can be merciful. We can be tolerant. We can be all these things. There's a lot of things that Christians need to do. Maybe there are times when when the church has not been as gracious, loving, understanding, kind, compassionate towards people who don't share our faith. So absolutely, there's work we can do. But, it's some, but after you've done all of that, there are times when people still won't embrace you because it's ultimately not you they have a problem with, it's the message. Maribel and I have a friend from Nepal, and she came to the States about 10 years ago to go to college. She went to New Mexico State, and she did her graduate and postgraduate work degree, and she came here to come to the seminary at Covenant Seminary. And we got to know her, and she was wonderful. She, had, she, she grew up in a Hindu home, but at New Mexico State, she encountered a campus ministry and became a Christian. And she'd been here about 10 years and just really made amazing connections, and uh, she's just an amazing, amazing person. Just loved the Lord. She went to one of the, the, the Nepalese church here in the city. But her visa expired, and she couldn't renew it, and had to go back to Nepal. And she was dreading it because she comes from a Brahmin family. Now, if you don't know what the Brahmin in the Hindu caste system is, you've heard, who's heard of the Hindu caste system? Well, at the top of the caste system are the Brahmins. The Brahmins are the priestly class. They're the very top. And they're very highly regarded in society. And so she went back home and, you know, her family is well-respected. They're well-to-do. They live in a massive family compound. And now she's the outlier because she's a Christian. And we talked to her recently and she said, it's, it's terrible. It's really terrible. She said that they give her a hard time. They ridicule her faith. She has tried to be kind and understanding and told her parents and her grandparents, I still love you. You know, this hasn't changed her relationship. And, but for them, it has. Because she's betrayed the family. She's betrayed who they are. And she's, she's given you know, reassurances. Grandma, mom, dad, I, I love you. You know, my love for you hasn't changed. But for them, it has. Because she's no longer a Hindu. Jesus addresses this whole topic another way in Luke. And this is what he says in Luke 12, 49 and 51 through 52. I have come to cast fire upon earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. For from now on, five members in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. The word there in the Greek for against is the Greek word dixatso, which means to cut in two, to rend asunder, and it's used only here in the New Testament, and it denotes complete and often permanent separation. And Jesus is very sober with us about the fact that our faith may separate us from some people permanently. Not because we want it, because that's what the faith does. The gospel is sort of like a fork in the road. It forces you to choose, doesn't it? And when you encounter the message of the gospel, sometimes in a person or a family member, 
you know, the, the road splits. You, you have to do something. You can't just stay there. You either go off to the left or you go off to the right. And what the gospel does in us with friends and family is it forces them to make a decision, at least in that moment. Now, there's nothing saying that they can't go back on that decision. But often people react and decide, you know, um, viscerally, you know. There's a strong emotional, mental response to the gospel. Sometimes the rift between believing and unbelieving relatives is lifelong and irreconcilable. But Jesus is essentially saying a true disciple has to be willing to pay that price. This is the cost of discipleship. And Jesus knew something of the strife that the gospel caused in family, didn't he? All four gospels agree that Jesus' family rejected him as the Messiah. Now, not Mary, but he had siblings and no doubt cousins and uncles, and you know how provincial village life is in that part of the world. Everybody's related, you know, his little village. And it's not totally clear what caused him to reject him, but people probably thought he was out of his mind. Can you imagine that? It's not just, you know, for you and I, we're just, you know, average folks, but like Jesus is the son of God himself. And he couldn't persuade his own family members. I mean, think about that for a moment. They thought he was nuts. He was out of his mind. In Mark 6 and 4, this is what Jesus says. Look at this. A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Now, no doubt Jesus said that after frustrating conversations with family members. prophet is not without honor except in his own town among his relatives and in his own home. Now Jesus' words may be troubling but they're comforting at the same time because he wants us to know and if you're a parent he wants us to know that it's not always about something you've done wrong because listen when our children don't follow in our footsteps or follow the way we take that we think they should, especially our faith, you know what the first thing we do? We say, and this is inevitable, we, we always do this, where did I go wrong? Like, what could I have done differently? It's not bad to think that, but, but listen, if you, if, you, if you take Jesus at his word, you recognize he didn't do anything wrong. This is what the gospel does. Sometimes it divides people. Yes, you're not the parent you should have been because no parent is the parent they should have been. Because we're all sinners, we're all fallen, we're all imperfect people. Jesus himself was unable to convince some family members. Now when children grow up to abandon the faith, one of the things I think we have to recognize is um, sometimes the message they, they may not be able to hear from you but they might be able to hear it from someone else. And so I always pray, I have four adult children, Lord, send people into my children's lives to tell them the truth about you, that I've been telling them for years, in new and fresh ways. Your adult children, they call you and they say, I was talking with so-and-so and they really persuaded me about such and such. And you think, isn't that nice? I've been telling you your whole life. 
that exact thing. But that's just how we are. We want our own experiences. We want to we want to discover, you know, things on our own. And this is encouraging because one of the things it tells us is that God can use the means of people beside you, of voices outside of the home your kids have known to touch their hearts and to reach their hearts. Listen, the writer of the book of James was Jesus' brother, and he was not convinced while Jesus was alive that Jesus was a Messiah. He was an unbeliever, Jesus' own brother James. But after the resurrection, he became a believer. James, Jesus' brother, not only became a believer and had a conversion experience after the resurrection, but he became a leader in the Jerusalem church, and he was, he was so devout that he was, his nickname was James the Just. And he wrote the book of James. And I think what's instructive for us is some people who have raised their children in the faith may not live to see their return to Christ. But they may very well come back to God when we're long gone. And we have to take some comfort in that. That God is sovereign and all souls are mine, says the Lord. I wish the souls of my children were mine. And that I could, you know, I could, I could move their hearts in such a way that made them believe. But I can't make my kids believe. You can't make your children believe. None of us can. Or any family member, for that sake. But we entrust them to God because God is good. And God is gracious. And God is loving. And God has the power to touch our hearts and persuade us, even our kids who right now may reject the message, or family members. And if you think about your own life, maybe there was a time when you were that way. You went through your rebellious streak or rebellious phase. My father passed away in 2018, and I gotta tell you, I mean, more and more, the longer I get out from his passing, the more I realize my, how much my father was right about so many things. My heart is different. We had some conflict, my father and I. We had a good relationship. We also had conflict, like every son and father. And so there were things I probably could not see or hear from my father while he was alive. And now, you know, my father, every year that goes by, my father is exalted higher and higher in my memory, right? James went on to become a great defender of Jesus in the Jerusalem church. Listen, one of the things we take comfort in is God's covenant promises to be a God to us and to our children and for all the generations to come. God is faithful to his covenant promises. And we remind God, we should, of his covenant promises to our kids in baptism. When we've baptized our children, say, Lord, remember the promises invoked at my son or my daughter's baptism. God is faithful to his covenant promises. Here's the point, okay? I'm beleaguer this. Being a disciple requires affirming the lordship of Christ to the point of forsaking everything else, including family, if it comes to that. When I say forsake family, I don't mean like we swear off our kids, you know, you're dead to me. That's not what we're talking about talking about the willingness to follow Christ at all costs. The willingness not to compromise our faith no matter what, because right now we're living in a time where the culture is going bananas. 
And, and young people are suffering from the banana syndrome we're in right now. I mean, it's, it's it, you know, it's, I mean, for me, I, it's like complete, you know, philosophical hysteria out there. Some of the things that are happening right now in our culture. And you just scratch your head. You don't know what to do. And you want to love people. You want to engage them graciously. But, but some things you just don't know any other way around to say, listen, this is what God's word says. I don't know how to you know, make a bridge other than just to be loving and gracious to you. At the end of the day, this is what it means to follow our God. This is what it means to follow Christ and be a faithful disciple. Look at how Jesus ends this saying about true discipleship. In verse 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So I guess I'm just going to ask, you know, are you taking up your cross? You live your life every day taking up your cross to follow him. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. In other words, if we fiendishly try to cling to everything because we don't want to lose any of it, we'll lose it all. But if we cling to Christ, we'll gain it all. This is what Jesus is saying. And this statement, whoever doesn't take up his cross and follow me, we, we symbolize that statement. Because we know that, you know, we're, no people aren't crucified today. No one's being, at least not in America, nailed to a cross. But in Jesus' day, when he says this, the cross only had one meaning. It was an instrument of death. There, were, there, there wasn't a symbolism to this in Jesus' day. It had one definition. The cross was a device of execution and death. And if it, if it was a symbol for anything, it was a symbol for dying. And my longing and your longing for everyone to be at peace with us at some point also has to die. Not everyone will accept you, love you, embrace you because you follow Jesus. Some people will read into your heart all sorts of weird, impugn you with all sorts of motives because you follow Jesus. And the desire to cling to this life will most certainly mean not having eternal life. But whoever loses their life for Christ, symbolically or literally, will find it in eternity. I recently watched for the third, maybe, maybe the third or fourth time, the Martin Scorsese film Silence, which is um, based on the historical novel from the 60s by Shusaku Endo of the same title. He was a Japanese Christian. And he wrote about a time in Japan of fierce persecution in the early 17th century when tens of thousands of Christians were killed for their faith, Japanese Christians. And the novel and the movie tell the story of priests who apostatized their faith in the face of martyrdom. And the book and the movie are very well done but it flows out of the death of God theology that came out of the 1960s, which essentially says that the most Christian person is the post-Christian person. The person who has sort of denied their faith, at least for the sake of making peace, they're like the most Christian person. And there's a lot of controversy over this idea, right? 
Because in the novel and the movie, the leaders, the Japanese leaders, are saying that the native Japanese Christians will not be executed if the Portuguese priests deny their faith publicly. And so it really teases out a conundrum, right, and a tension. But it does kind of flow out of this idea that, look, it's about peace at all costs. I believe in my core that the book and the movie flow from a discomfort that's, that exists with us today. That in our age of tolerance and unity and enlightenment and cultural harmony, that we, Christians, hold to something that people hate. And that makes us uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable about that. Because we live in a time where unity and cultural harmony is exalted above all things. And we don't like the idea that there is something that we hold to deeply that some people hate. Some people don't like this idea that there is a God who has spoken to the world and revealed himself and offers himself in one person, Jesus. That's it. No alternative routes to heaven. And that knowing him in any real sense cannot happen outside of that revelation. Now look, people encounter a feeling of God in nature. I totally get that. Our theology, we call that common grace, which is God can be known in some sense just through the beauty of creation and the beauty of the world and life. You know, you go to Yosemite, you see a 700-foot waterfall, you know, and El Capitan and Half Dome, and you think, wow, I would think there's got to be something out there if you're an unbeliever. But to know God intimately and relationally doesn't happen outside of the person of Jesus. And that's something we can never compromise. We can never compromise that statement, that message, that idea. Because that is what is given to us through God's own revelation in Scripture. As much as we'd like to blend into the multiplicity of expressions, and we do. We live in harmony with people who are Muslims or atheists or Buddhists or Hindus. We do. We live in harmony with those people the best we can. But as much as we would like to sort of flatten out the distinction between the multiplicity of expressions in our pluralistic world, which our world demands, the truth is the way is narrow and it brings us into conflict at time with those closest to us. Christianity still causes division. I wish it weren't so, but it is. Why do we often shy away from this spiritual warfare? Maybe because we love our lives too much. We love this life too much, or we love this world too much. We enjoy it too much. And sometimes if life is too good, it's too much of an anchor. We don't want to go to heaven. We don't want the Lord to return. We don't want any of those things. Because we cannot imagine an existence better than the one we have. But it's often one of life's greatest hindrances to full commitment to Christ. Are you a disciple this morning? Are you a disciple of Christ? Are you taking up your cross? I want to encourage you this morning not to seek out conflict, not to try to destroy the peace between loved ones, but to recognize that after you've done all you know to do, to love others, to be gracious and kind, compassionate and understanding, that Christ calls us to abandon all at the end of the day to follow him. And following him, we will follow him into eternity for all time. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you now for this opposite side of the coin of peace. We are trying to, by your grace, live at peace with all people, and we want to. We don't want there to be strife or conflict with others. But give us hearts that are faithful, that refuse to abandon you. Our lives are just a speck on the blip of eternity. And what we do here does echo into eternity, O oh God, and help us to follow you faithfully, to take up our cross, crosses, to deny ourselves, and to be willing, O oh God, to follow you wherever you lead, faithfully, empowered with the strength of your spirit, and even to win those to Christ who do not now believe. And we pray with hope and longing that even if we are unable by our words or persuasion or love to persuade those who don't believe, to convince them of the gospel of Christ that you in your power and grace would save our loved ones and bring them into the fold. We pray these things in Christ's name.